Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Ray Bradbury wrote in his short story, Usher Two, published in 1950, Poe and Lovecraft and Hawthorne and Ambrose Bierce and all the tales of terror and fantasy and horror and, for that matter, tales of the future were burned, heartlessly. They passed a law. Oh, it started very small. In 1950 and 60, it was a grain of sand. They began by controlling books of cartoons, and then detective books, and, of course, films, one way or another, one group or another, political bias, religious prejudice, union pressure. There was always a minority afraid of something, and a great majority afraid of the dark, afraid of the future, afraid of the past, afraid of the present, afraid of themselves and shadows of themselves. So they lined them up against a library wall one Sunday morning 30 years ago, in 1975. They lined them up, St. Nicholas and the Headless Horseman, and Snow White and Rumpelstiltskin and Mother Goose, oh, what a wailing, and shot them down, and burned the paper castles and the fairy frogs and old kings and the people who lived happily ever after, for of course it was a fact that nobody lived happily ever after, and once upon a time became no more, and they spread the ashes of the phantom rickshaw with the rubble of the land of Oz. They filleted the bones of Glinda the Good and Ozma and shattered polychrome in a spectroscope and served Jack Pumpkinhead with meringue in the biologist's ball. The beanstalk died in a bramble of red tape. Sleeping Beauty awoke at the kiss of a scientist and expired at the fatal puncture of his syringe and they made Alice drink something from a bottle which reduced her to a size where she could no longer cry curiouser and curiouser, and they gave the looking glass one hammer blow to smash it, and every red king and oyster away. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What is cancel culture? Why can books like Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 help prepare young people to face a world intent on canceling our Western heritage? Joining us today on the Wittenberg Hour to discuss this cancel culture phenomenon and how classic works can help prepare scholars to face it is Mrs. Emily Cochran. Mrs. Cochran teaches Philosophy and Paideia C at Wittenberg Academy. Emily, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Emily, your reading list for Paideia C, a junior high history and literature course that focuses on American history, covers everything from the Mayflower Compact to Fahrenheit 451. Why did you decide to conclude your survey of American history and literature with Fahrenheit 451. So chronologically speaking, we end right around the dawn of the Cold War. Some of our last primary source material that we read for the course as a whole is Winston Churchill's Iron Curtain speech given in Fulton, Missouri, for example. Chronologically speaking, we are at a point where technology had reached, reached a point where we could never really could have imagined Hiroshima and Nagasaki we are really in unprecedented times in terms of weaponry, in terms of technology, and now one of those big three that technically won World War II is now 
really against us. An ally that had known, at least in part, some of our strategy, some of our technology is now one of our enemies. Communism is taking Asia by storm. We see communism taking root in Korea, causing the Korean War. We see communist conflicts in Vietnam, obviously in the 60s and 70s. The future never seemed more in question, pretty much had the ability to ensure what they called mutually assured destruction. I'm sure lots of people who lived through the Cold War era would remember that phrase quite well probably not quite fondly, but quite well. Uh, and the themes and fear that go with this sort of apprehension at the end of World War II, going into the Cold War, into the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, are really, in a way, common to almost every era. There's always going to be unprecedented technology, unprecedented uncertainty about the future. But it seems like it was very particular to the end of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War, because this was one of the first times they had that mutually assured destruction. And Fahrenheit 451, as far as technology is speaking, seems really pertinent, whichever year we study it. But this year in 2020 has probably been the most fitting year so far, coronavirus pandemic. And then of course with race riots starting in May with, uh, with the death of Mr. Floyd, everything going on in America right now sort of reflects the uncertainty about the future, uncertainty about technology, and the fear that goes along with that as represented in Fahrenheit 451. And so Fahrenheit 451, a lot of people try to say, oh, it's most important this year or during this era, or, oh, we see Ray Bradbury's predictions coming true. The fact that you can do it in so many different eras and so many different years really means that Bradbury's work is masterfully timeless. And so in Paideia C, we try to look at works that are indeed masterfully timeless, whether they be primary source documents with the American founding or throughout American government history or literature, things that are either a great American novel, such as The Great Gatsby or Fahrenheit 451 that serves as a timeless warning that we can find pertinent to our lives in virtually any era, but we're feeling it, especially in 2020. I'm sure in the future it will be even more so with various circumstances, but the timelessness of it is really masterfully done by Bradbury. So I found it appropriate to be placed at the brink of the Cold War era. At Wittenberg Academy, we look at teaching as formation. Everything we teach is part of the formation of young scholars. We do this in the context of the church militant. We are preparing scholars to love and serve their neighbor in a world hostile to the truth of scripture. We'll come back to that further later on, but first, that phrase cancel culture has become a commonly heard phrase. In case our listeners have not heard that phrase, could you give us a quick overview of cancel culture and where we see it? Sure. I don't consider myself a an expert on cancel culture, but rather a witness uh, to what's going on today. The witness, a witness to the cancel culture, especially in my own life. Cancel culture is really what it sounds like: a culture of cancellation. We can simply erase the past by erasing it on Twitter, deleting offensive Instagram posts, deleting non politically correct Facebook posts, or we can erase it from the school curriculum. We can erase history that we find offensive from Turner classic movies. We can erase it from our pancake mix labels. 
It's the false belief that by erasing a label, erasing a tweet, erasing a picture, we can erase the sin or so-called sin that we committed when we weren't as culturally aware. Or if we discover that, for example, a historical figure made, let's say, a racist remark or owned slaves, we have to erase that individual from history by what we're seeing right now with this year, especially tearing down statues. Unfortunately, both sides of this trend, those calling for cancel culture, those for calling for the preservation of things like statues and that sort of thing, often tend to create a dichotomy of sorts, especially with the statue debate. There seems to be a either sinner or statue dichotomy. People are fiercely defending historical figures as worthy of having statues, while others are saying, no, they had racist remarks or they owned slaves. We have to tear them down. What if the truth is actually in the middle? What if this person was deeply flawed in a, in one particular way? And not putting a blanket statement on all statues that are being torn down, but there's some historical figures that are a little bit more complex than either side is giving them credit for. But We've reduced everyone to sinner or statue, sinner or Instagram influencer, sinner or singer. You know, we strive for woke perfection, but there's no absolution for this sin. There's only cancellation. That's a really good point, just in terms of the the very stark, dogmatic way that we seem to approach everything. And by we, I'm, I'm talking about society in general, not necessarily you and I. It's an interesting thing to ponder that when there is more and more evidence of, of less and less historical knowledge, that these are the times that people are claiming more and more authority to decide what should and should not remain as as part of history. Mm -hmm. I think it's an interesting confluence of of variables there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we've seen this in terms of folks who were abolitionists, for example, that their statues (laughs) were taken down. And you look at that and you go, okay, wait a second. I thought they were for what you were going for, but maybe not. Right. Absolutely. There's no, there's no discernment. Once the, the high of being woke has taken hold, there's really no coming down from it. There's hardly any, hardly any ability to discern properly left in those who have really achieved that level of wisdom, that really, that nirvana that they're really seeking after that's been really kind of dangled in front of people's faces as a sort of moral imperative to achieve you have to achieve some level of wokeness as they're as the kids these days are calling it by what i see really is that we as a society are scrambling to both create a paper trail tracing us back to the right side of a trend and yet also with cancel culture seeking to destroy a paper trail digital or otherwise tracing us to any sort of opinion and it's just really it's disturbing that nobody, there is no tolerance, there's no tolerance for any differing worldview or any sort of differing approach to any of these issues. It is either you are culturally aware or you're canceled. And it's really disturbing. And and along with that, the inability to actually dialogue 
about these things. I don't have an opportunity to be won over by someone else's ideas. And I don't have the opportunity to win anyone over with my ideas because we can't actually have a discussion about anything. We emote, we don't, we don't discuss, we emote. And because of that, there isn't opportunity to see things from another perspective. You think about classic rhetoric or debate. One of the main tenets of debate is you always know your opponent. You know where he's coming from so you can anticipate what he might throw at you. And it seems that all of that is out the window and you can't get together and and actually talk about anything for fear of either offending or being offended. Mm -hmm. And somebody that I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been just casually watching at her story. Something that I wasn't expecting at all in 2020 was to see JK Rowling of all people crucified by the mob in a way, or if even if that mob is digital or the mob is simply Twitter or Instagram, she, for the way that she has commented on transgender individuals has drawn very dire criticism, but she simply voiced the fact that kind of boiled down to it. Biological men do not menstruate. (laughs) Right. And for that kind of a statement, she has been, well, tarred and feathered, I suppose. And even yesterday in the news, one of her latest novels that she's writing under a pseudonym features a villain who is transgender. She's not saying every single villain or every single transgender person is a villain, but the villain in her work happens to be a cross-dressing biological male. It's really kind of shocking that she and some other authors and some other celebrities have signed a petition a while back, really encouraging the well, cancellation of cancel culture to the fact that, look, we can't dialogue about any of this. If everybody is just obsessed with covering their rear ends, making sure that their tweets, their Instagram posts, their Facebook posts, everything measures up to what is culturally relevant, then we lose dialogue. We lose the ability to talk to each other and understand each other. So that was really interesting to me to see that transpire with her. Thinking about dialogue and how important that has been throughout history. Imagine all of the great events of history and taking out dialogue as an element influencing whatever happened. I mean, can you imagine how many things would not have happened? It's it's kind of astounding to ponder. Absolutely. There's a time for executive action. There's time for this is what we're doing and we will ask questions later. However, when it comes to things like uh, what we study in my class with establishing our government after the Articles of Confederation fell through, we read some of the Federalist Papers. We read how they didn't simply sweep in and say, this is how we're going to do it and you're going to be okay with it. Um, They published the Federalist Papers in newspapers to influence voters to vote in favor of sending delegates to ratify the the proposed constitution. So this is very much, it was very much to get a discussion going throughout the, throughout the country as we were trying to figure out how on earth, what kind of government are we going to set up? Because a very decentralized articles of confederation based government clearly was not working, but we can't go back to what we had with England. What are we going to do? So 
dialogue and creating com- community discussion of these issues is really vital. And like you said, I can't imagine so many different things in history happening without any, without any kind of dialogue or at least knowing your enemy. With this, there's no desire to know the enemy. You know that the enemy is wrong simply because that enemy does not have the same opinion as you. And it's really right. strange. Right. You think about even going further back, you think about the ecumenical councils and you think mm-hmm. about the the fights against heresy. If the church fathers hadn't been able to work things out and flush out heresy through that process, certainly through the, the word of God and prayer, but, but also God has given us our reason and being able to proclaim truth having established this is why this is true this is what god's word says and what you are saying is not true because god's word says it's not true it's an interesting thing to ponder but this is such an important thing in terms of preparing young scholars to live in this world and face this world i i have a hunch just given that you know, in reality, cancel culture is not a new thing. It's just kind of a new phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if we look back through history, even in the early time period that you teach, there was all sorts of guys would print something in the newspaper to completely defame and go against their political opponents. So attacking the character and ideas of someone else is is not a new thing. No. Uh, But I think the lack of being able to defend yourself is perhaps something that we've reached a new level of. Yeah, tolerance the right word. I don't know. (laughs) Absolutely. You saw it with the discussions on racial relations after uh, Mr. Floyd died in Minnesota. That what what I was seeing continuously on social media was listen don't respond. Do You had better not respond to what I'm saying right now. And then allegations, pretty serious allegations to people's honor were made. And then if that person defended himself or herself, the only response was, oh, you responded. I told you to be quiet. That's disappointing. And that's it. And that was just, for heaven's sakes, at least in the, in, not the good old days, but when you had a public insult to someone's honor, I mean, come on, let's go out and let's duel. Right, <laughs> you at right. least had, you at least had an opportunity to reclaim your honor. And right, now right. it's, you will listen, you will be quiet. And if you say anything, well, I'm not going to listen, but it automatically, I mean, you start out as a disadvantage because either you are a white supremacist for not saying the right thing, but if you speak up to defend yourself, well, Sure, that just confirms what I said. You're basically a white supremacist for not listening to me, which was to not talk and to not say anything. Does that make sense? Right. Yes. Yeah. You are wrong before you start. And if you say anything, you're more wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So so your only option is wrong. Exactly. Yeah. So thinking then about Ray Bradbury and Fahrenheit 451, how does this book in particular and your entire reading list in general, prepare scholars to love and serve their neighbor in a world hostile to truth. Well, everything in Fahrenheit 451 is focused on the self. 
There's really, or that is the entire culture that the characters live in. There's little to no consideration of pretty much any other human being in one's life, except for, of course, when people, when neighbors come to watch TV on the parlor walls, or really, unless you're considering the fake family of the parlor wall TV programs to be your own family. Mildred, the protagonist's wife, for example, she overdoses at the beginning of the book. And the paramedics are so used to this happening, they don't even seem to mind. Captain Beatty, the main antagonist, when he explains in this part two why this society has decided to burn books, he paints a picture of a nation that's especially similar to our own in 2020, but also in virtually every every stage of our history. But we can see today, he talks about how certain groups were suddenly offended at everything. He said that you couldn't offend, he says the dog lovers, the cat lovers, he says people from Oregon, Swedes, Italians, people from Mexico. So the authors who were offending these people, he says, quote, full of evil thoughts were told to lock up the typewriters and they did. So with, with these parts of Fahrenheit 451 focusing entirely on our feelings, how I feel about what you're saying, about what you're writing, and the fact that I can bring a company to its knees by claiming that I am offended at something that you've done. They have, as the reader, you can see how society has simply, I don't want to say lost all control because it's not as if a government needs to control the people, but right. society itself has lost it's lost its sense of self in the individual. There's no, we think that we are becoming more happy individuals, but in fact, we are simply becoming a brainless collective. Beatty, the, the antagonist, he goes on to say, not everybody is born free and equal as the constitution says, but everybody is made equal. And as for how this works with the rest of the reading list for Pedeosi. Uh, we talk at length in Pedeosi about how the, found, the founding documents are often interpreted as these sorts of bleeding heart opportunities to talk about how we are all equal. Nobody can take that away. They become these spirited exhortations for us to go and chase our dreams. You be you. No one can tell you any different because our founding documents say we have been given the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, how dare somebody tell me that I cannot chase my dream? Well, as Lutherans, we ask, what about our vocations? Right. What about... What about the differences we've been given, the, the differences we've been gifted with, not simply skin color or anything like that, but differences in ability, differences in gifts that we've been given. And it makes us wonder if our founding documents that we read in our class are really meant to be how modern culture interprets them. You know, I, I sometimes ask my students, what would happen if I said that I wanted to be the first black president? And there's legitimate awkwardness. It's almost palpable. Like they don't know what to say because <laughs> right. they are, they don't because know what to Mrs. say. Mrs. Cochran just <laughs> fell off her rocker and who's going to be the one to tell her? <laughs> who's going to be the one to tell her? She is not 35 for one thing. Oh, and uh, she's not black. Sorry. And also we've already had the first black. So but nobody, it seems like every single time, nobody wants to tell me that I can't do that. They're right. re it's really awkward. So it begs the question, do our founding documents cited by virtually every politician of every stripe, right or left, mean for us to chase our dreams, 
chart our own course, look for our own happiness above all else. History and context tells us that that really isn't the case. But we start with these documents you mentioned, especially the Mayflower Compact is the first one, and we end with Fahrenheit 451. And in between, during this kind of light speed survey of US history, we have some really notable documents in between that first one of the Mayflower Compact and then Fahrenheit 451, including the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, where shocker, education and morality should forever be encouraged as well as religion. And that document set a precedent blocking the expansion of slavery, which of course that precedent was tossed out a generation later. We have selections from Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, where he notes that Americans would rather be equal in slavery than unequal in freedom. We have selections from early 20th century progressives that turn that focus even further inwards about how we must be guaranteed certain creature comforts and certain material rights and provided by the national level government. The focus goes from our nation as a constitutional republic to a pure unadulterated democracy, and it has consequences. We've gone from living in a community according to our vocation to living for our own dreams. And that is not without consequence. Thinking about that reality of these scholars living in the context in which they have been born and thinking about the church militant through all generations, why is the preparation of young people to be in the church militant, to live in the church militant, and to stay alive so long as God would have them here. Why Why is preparation so important? Well, there's never really been a time where the entire world is tolerant and accepting and loving of Christianity. And it's only going to get worse until Christ comes again. The spirit blows where he pleases, the word is scattered on various landscapes, but we also can't simply throw up our hands, shrug our shoulders and say, God's gonna do what he's gonna do and kind of sideline our responsibility and vocation as parents and teachers. We have a God-given duty to our children to teach them up in the way that they should go. But God doesn't say that in their wistful, changing, hormonal youth, they will not depart from it. He says they're in their old age, they will not depart from it. So no matter what happens, it's our job as parents and educators to instill truth in our children, whether or not they turn from it the second they get to college. We pray that they don't. We, um, we do our best to instill them with objectivity. The fact that they're, I mean, in our philosophy class, we talk about the um, rational uh, rational proof for the existence of God. We talk about how uh, various intellectual exercises can lead you to the discovery of a higher power that is not, in fact, you. We, in PIDSC, we talk about things that are lasting, things that are objective, judging our laws by the Constitution, for example, and how it's meant to be not a living document, but a dead document that's meant to transcend circumstance and the political atmosphere of a time. So in a world where everything is changing, and it always has been, teaching things that are objective, that are lasting based on a human nature that has been around for millennia is really important to do. There are things that are lasting and things that depend on circumstances. 
And so much of U.S. history is just a microcosm of the great transition from objectivity to subjectivity in societal, economic, or governmental ways in law and religion. So while we have our children, it's our duty to raise them up in the way they should go. And we pray that in their young age, they will not depart from it. But we also pray that in their old age, if in their young age, they do depart, that in their old age, they will come back to that which they learned. That's the reason why things like the liturgy are so important. Things, different prayers that we recite, different hymns that we have. I mean, you're not going to be talking on your deathbed about how you were so accepting and so tolerant and so diverse and all of this other stuff on your deathbed. You go back to the things that you know, that sometimes from your earliest memories. My husband had a teacher in seminary when we were in England who said that he doesn't know any of the Finnish language except for the liturgy because he had sat with so many people from Finland on their deathbed who simply would go back to what they learned when they were younger. Mm. And so when we have this pattern of what happens as people grow older and lose their memories, it's important to instill that which they can cling to later. You want something that they can go with their entire lives rather than something they can grow out of the second they get to a college campus. And even so, we can do that even while we are praying, come Lord Jesus quickly. You know? mm-hmm. um, Absolutely. Yeah. And we don't and we don't know if it's going to, I mean, God loves our children more than we do. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. We don't, we can't say, if something happens to our children, we can't, we can't reduce it down to what did we do wrong? We can confess where we failed, but we can't obsess over every single thing that we do and say, well, they're going to fall away from the faith if I don't do X or Y. Right. And so yeah. somehow it is up to me to keep them in the church. Well, you're taking the Holy Spirit out of a job there. Right. We have to. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is why we teach our children that it's the Holy Spirit that calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies not us, you know, in, in mm-hmm. that regard. Yeah. So I don't want to spoil the end of Fahrenheit 451 in case anyone has not read it. And I would certainly recommend that if our if our listeners have not read it, that they certainly give it a read. And if they have junior high scholars, seventh or eighth graders in particular, that they consider enrolling in Mrs. Cochran's Paideia C class. It starts in Christmas term, which in the year 2020 begins the Monday after Thanksgiving. So for all of our listeners, spread the word so that your scholars can sit at the feet of of Mrs. Cochran. She didn't ask me to say that. That was (laughs) my own accord. (laughs) But I think we can safely say that Fahrenheit 451, Usher 2, which I had never read uh, before I started preparing for this podcast, but I believe Usher 2 was actually the short story that then Fahrenheit 451 sprang from Usher 2. I I don't know. Have you read Usher 2? I have not, no. I found it kind of a fascinating work. But anyway, it's, it's that same canceling, burning, all of these sorts of things. But I think we can safely say that Fahrenheit 451, Usher 2, and other Bradbury stories are conservative in that they warn and challenge us to conserve the literary treasures that have stood the test of time and these days are subject to cancellation. In your estimation, how do we know what we should conserve? Perhaps put another way, why should Fahrenheit 451 
be conserved? Well, Fahrenheit 451, among many other novels and many other uh, many other stories, do warn us of what happens when cancel culture takes hold on such a massive scale. So having books that do in fact keep us in check and maybe prick our consciences a little bit can be very, very helpful to us as a culture because we might not realize that we are in fact participating in the kind of culture that will lead, perhaps not in full, but maybe in part or in spirit to a society reflected in Fahrenheit 451. We know what to conserve because we know what is true. We know what is good. We study the good, the true, and the beautiful in a proper liberal arts education. And so literature that supports that notion that there is truth, there is justice, there is objectivity, we have to keep those things around. But we simply can't cancel books that say otherwise either. Because again, going back to the idea of dialogue, we have to be able to discern properly that which is true and that which is not true. So simply canceling out what we know is not true and simply pretending that it does not exist is not helpful because if human, if human history has told us anything, it's that untruth and heresy always has a way of creeping back no matter how much you try to outlaw it. So we can't simply outlaw things we don't agree with and things that we know are not true, but that's why it's so important for us to teach our children to discern properly with a good, proper education, with good, with a good notion of what is in fact true based with our foundation in the scriptures and what we know to be true based on what God has revealed to us. This is Emily Cochran, teaches philosophy and Paideia C for Wittenberg Academy. Emily, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour. My name is Emily Cochran, and I teach Paideia C and philosophy for Wittenberg Academy. In Paideia C, scholars spend 24 weeks, or two terms, studying U.S. history from the beginnings of our founding period until the end, or that is the beginning of the Cold War. Um, in this class, we use primary source documents as a large part of our, uh, our learning process, looking at things like letters, laws, decrees, diary entries, etc., to formulate our discussion on American history. Uh, we also learn about the overarching transition from America as originally a constitutional republic to 
an egalitarian democracy that we see it is today. We discussed the shiftings and changing of government power based on various shifts in ideologies on the part of the American people as well. We also study various works of American literature in order to help understand the time periods in question for this course. This class also relies very heavily upon student writing skills. This class is really important and matters to students because our society really needs to learn how to put flesh and bones on these skeletons that we call our founding fathers and various other American figures. We need to remember that these people are in fact people just like us. Uh, they are simply us from another time. They had the same emotions we do. They had doubts, fears, aspirations, and most importantly, they had principles. They knew about the difference between subjectivity and objectivity when it came to the government, as well as the dangers of being led by the passions and by our emotions. As our society increases in democratic, that is small d as in a democracy classically understood, um, as it increases democratically, it's a worthy task to endeavor to study the people and the principles that they've instituted um, um, for our country as a really unique one amongst all the countries on planet Earth. As the country with the oldest functioning constitution on planet Earth, it's a worthy endeavor to study the origins of that constitution and the people who wrote it and the impact on that constitution that we have today. Is it a living document? Is it a dead document? Is it objective? Subjective? Does that objectivity or subjectivity apply to other governmental documents, such as the Declaration of Independence? Those are the kinds of things that matter and that we'll study in PIDASD.